The following podcast is a part of the Spin Studio Network. She's one of the world's most influential names in fitness, listed among the AFR's Young Rich List, Forbes, and partnered with identities like Khloe Kardashian and Good American, boasting more than 15 million followers across the globe. With a family, an empire, and dumbbells in hand, Emily has made her dreams into reality, and she's here to show that you can too. This is the You Can Podcast by Emily Skye. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the You Can Podcast. I'm Emily and I'm here with Sam, my co-host. Hello there. And we also have a very special guest. I'm so excited about this topic. So we have someone here to talk about gut health and her name is Dr. Megan Rossi, aka the Gut Health Doctor. Welcome to the show. Welcome. Thanks, guys. I think we should probably pop in quickly and just say Megan is coming into us live, if you will, from uh, London, where um, we're doing a teleconference. We're very advanced here. This is the first one we've done. So. This is. Button Pusher Aaron has really stepped it up, and here we go. We're on fire. So welcome to the show, Megan Rossi. Guys, you look like you've got everything set up, and uh, it's <laughs> going to be quite the teleconference. <laughs> we're so ready for it. Let's calm down just before we get into this Megan chat, which I'm very excited about, because given we're talking about gut health, Emily, you were in the kitchen last night, which is wildly unusual for yourself, although thankfully Declan was there to ensure you didn't burn the house down, but you're eating HelloFresh, and I am literally on the verge of ordering. I feel like I see it everywhere on the gram. Tell me a story. I was seeing it everywhere too, and as you know, I'm not that great with cooking and planning. It's one of really? my downfalls. Yeah, it's my downfall. Um, so I was seeing heaps of people post it. And I thought I should give it a go. And I was talking to Deck. I was like, if I get this, will you make it for me? <laughs> no, I actually help him in the kitchen now. I like hand him the ingredients. Well, I mean, the problem for me, right, is that often I can't be bothered with the palaver of dinner. You go to the shops, you buy all the bits. The whole thing, you, yeah. Do you know what I mean? It take, it's too long. And if I'm there by myself, then it's getting me addressed in the car. And then she doesn't want to be at the shop. And she's grabbing everything off the shelf. So oh, this is that, done. That's me, but only in the bad aisle. <laughs> But HelloFresh is done for you, so they just they deliver it to your door, and you don't have to be home. So I. So what's in the box? I feel like I'm on that TV of, show. It's all fresh food, but it's all like whole foods, and then they've got the recipe there for you, and it tells you exactly what to do, and the amounts are all there. But ready it's to not go. frozen. No, it's fresh. Like you just put it in the yeah, fridge. Yeah, see, that's I can't handle a frozen meal. No, I don't do frozen either. It's never the same. So then it's they well they're doing multiple deliveries then, right? Like in the week. Well, they deliver one, and then you get everything for the next like however many days so oh, whatever you you've ordered it. for yeah and it lasts like they'll tell you how long it lasts for as well so i'm living for that it's a, kit. And it's a meal kit so everything's done for you, you just and i love that one of the things i love when i see on instagram people who are doing it and you've got like the card and then you see people trying to get as close to the card as possible i loved when you were doing that <laughs> i'm no good at making things look good <laughs> but it actually did look really good because they're you know it's all healthy vibrant Colourful ingredients, so it, it always look looks good. so yeah. It always looks so like, much better, doesn't yeah, it? Instagram postcard, living for that. Um, and we love the fact that we've also got a discount for listeners. We do have a discount, so you get a eighty dollars off over your first four boxes. So what that means is you get thirty dollars off your first, thirty dollars off your second, and then the third you get ten dollars off, and the fourth you get another ten. So it's pretty good. It's a lot of money off. I know. You get eight free meals. Because when I've looked at them, they're not that they're not expensive like at all. No, the prices are really good. Do you know I spend because do you know what I find is hard, right? 
unless I'm cooking something super basic, when you go to the, like a Woolworths or a Coles or whatever, by the time you buy everything to make something tasty, do you know what I mean? Like I don't have a lot of stuff well, on file. you just can't be bothered, that's why. I mean, there's that 100%, <laughs> but I, uh, there's not a lot of stuff on file in my house. No. Spices and herbs and by the time you buy one of everything, because you can't yep. buy pre-portioned pieces like they've obviously got going on here, you spend so much money. I know, so much money. And you know what I hate too, and you probably do the same thing, Deck and I are always like, well, what are we going to have for dinner? Oh, I don't know. I don't decisions. know. I'm so indecisive oh. and everything's here for you and it's all delicious, but it's healthy too. Well, that's amazing. I'm actually reading this little doc here about the discount. It, it, it's the equivalent of eight free meals yeah. with this discount. That's pretty hectic, especially yeah. for a family. And you can skip weeks at a time as well, at any time, I mean. So you can you, you don't have to, like say you're going away or something or you need a week off, you can actually oh. just skip it and you can pause as well. So you don't need to use the discount on four consecutive boxes. Okay, like, oh, that's that's a weapon. I love that. Yeah, so love it. Fab. I'm actually addicted now. <laughs> so good. And that's tonight. Yeah. How exciting. And beef is on the menu for tonight. I Are you saw, coming over to have some? I think I will be, as long as I'm not the one cooking. Well, I might not be either, so Dex's going to be in the kitchen. Where he belongs. <laughs> no, I'll be in there with him. <laughs> oh, he's going to love hearing that. <laughs> um, so to reiterate, it's $80 off your first four boxes. Don't need to be consecutive. Shit's been delivered to your home. Hello, lazy people. Welcome yep. to me. Um, and what's the code, Emily? Yep. We have a code and it's UCAN80. 80. 80. $80 off. Yeah. I'm so into that. Love a discount. I'm looking forward to dinner tonight. Before we get started, I'm just going to give people a bit of context as to why you are the gut health doctor. So in 2009, Megan became a qualified dietitian and received her PhD with the Dean's Award, recognizing her contribution to science in 2015. Megan has worked as a clinical dietitian and as the sports nutritionist for the Australian Olympic synchronized swimming team. And Dr. Rossi is now a research fellow at King's College London, where she leads research investigating nutrition-based therapies in She's told me to say gut health because she knows that I can't quite get gastrointestinal health right. <gasps> Hello. Yes. Thank you. Including pre and <laughs> thank you. Pre and probiotics, dietary fibers, the low FODMAP diet, and food additives. It's safe to say you know far more than Emily and I combined. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome on. Probably most of the world too. <laughs> so it's a pleasure, guys. You know, I'm a big fan fan of Emily, so. We love that. That's why she's not a fan of mine. She's already got that in fast. Did, did everyone hear that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm a big fan, fan of yours, Megan. It's so weird hearing my voice through here. I just have to say I I'm know. talking so weird. And then there's also the delay with the, yeah. the thing. So we're such professionals. But I think probably um, to get started and sort of to hear a bit more. So um, just to give you context, um, and, and how am I best to refer to you? Dr. Rossi, Megan, how shall I? No, no, guys. Call me Megan. Oh, if I got the degree, I tell you what, I wouldn't. I'd be going to the shops and saying, "We're well, doctor. doctor." If you don't mind, yeah, yeah. <laughs> every form. Now, um, I think if you're not aware, but certainly, and Emily, I'm sure you'll endorse this. The number one question you get is about gut health. Yeah, it's every day. It's the most popular thing. I'm always, always asked, and my DMs are filled with the questions about gut health. Yeah, and it's yeah. very hard, obviously, for you because you can't often, I guess, answer with anything more than your personal experience. Exactly. And yes. so to have Megan here is incredible. So I think to get started, if you could tell us a bit about yourself and I guess where your gut health journey started. Yeah, so I um, always have been into food. I've just, you know, from an early age, I was just obsessed with food. I come from a big Italian family. I grew up on a farm and my mum was actually a science teacher. So I guess my, my love of food and science really did um, take me down the nutrition and dietetic route. But actually, it was in my final year studying nutrition and dietetics when I actually lost my grandma to bowel cancer. And, you know, my grandma had a huge part of my upbringing, so I was really close to her. 
and yeah, so I think to start off with, my relationship with the gut was actually really quite negative. And then after I graduated, I started working with people um, who had diseases all over their body, whether it was their heart disease or kidney disease. And what I found is they're all coming to me complaining of gut issues. And I thought, God, what is it about this bloody organ? You know, we don't seem to be talking much about it, but everyone's complaining about it. And, you know, the more complaints I got and I thought, I really do owe it to my grandma and, you know, to all my patients to really understand more about this, you know, seemingly undiscovered organ. So that's when I decided to do the PhD, which was really to try and understand whether we target the gut through the right nutrition, whether that could improve the health of other organs. And fast forward those three years, it was a successful trial showing indeed our gut microbes, the trillions of bacteria in our gut, could actually impact the health of other organs. And, you know, I was also during that stage very lucky to be the um, the nutritionist, as you mentioned, for the Australian Olympic synchronized swimming team and found that the girls that had the most performance anxiety also had the most number of gut issues. So, you know, it became quite clear to me it wasn't just this, you know, unique gut kidney axis or gut heart axis in sick people, but actually, you know, in healthy and elite athletes, this organ has such a far-reaching um, impact on our other organs, like our mental health. So it was the end of my PhD where I thought, you know what, if I really want to have an impact on people's health, it's going to be by the gut. Because unlike things like our genetics, we can't change our genetics, but indeed we can impact our gut health, which I'm sure we'll talk about um, in ways that we can actually do that. And that can have very far-reaching effects on you know, things like our mental health and our heart health and, you know, weight management, all those sorts of things. So I looked around the world at who was doing the most innovative gut health research and it was King's um, in London. So I moved over here, when was that, 2015. And, you know, I thought I'd just be here for about a year, um, but we've just gotten so many amazing research grants um, that really has kind of driven me um, to extend you know, the links between things like the gut and the brain. And, you know, for that, I needed to stay in the UK. Um, but I guess, yeah, how I got into more, you know, meeting Emily and um, public engagement was actually, I think it was due to frustration, really, that, you know, that despite the amazing research that not only my team was doing, but, you know, researchers all over the world were doing, actually it was a fad and potentially dangerous message that were being communicated to the public. So I thought... You know, my mom always used to say, if you want something done, do it yourself. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought, how can I, you know, try to get that message out there? So I wasn't really much of a social media person. I didn't do it personally. I thought, oh, God, if I get a few, you know, 100 followers, it would have more of an impact than I was currently having in clinic, you know, where you see people one-on-one. So I set it up. And then, you know, through the support of some key influencers like Emily, um, we've just, yeah, been able to grow and really get that message out there. And it does, you know, I think highlight that so many people are interested in wanting the actual evidence behind how they can nurture their gut. So that was a bit of a ramble, but no, it's <laughs> so amazing. I just sitting here going, oh, it's so good. I love what I you mean, do. What dedication to move all the way to London when no. you see that's where the best research is. That's incredible. I know. And also, I mean, trading Australia for England. Hello. Mm-hmm. Well, the weather's I know, better the here. Weather is like- zero degrees right now. We just got back from that in New York. We'll not be going back. So what, can you explain what gut health actually is and and why it's important to have good gut health? Obviously you just said before how it affects different parts of your, your body and everything's connected and they call it your second brain for a reason. So can you elaborate more on why we need to keep our guts, you know, on top of it and keep, make sure we're eating the right sort of food for our tummies? 
Yeah, that's such a good question because although everyone's talking about gut health, I think what it is is not really, is kind of yeah, really communicated. Yeah. So gut health actually relates the functioning of our entire digestive tract. So essentially it's a nine meter long tube that delivers food from entry all the way to exit. Um, and if I had to summarize why gut health is so important, there's really three key areas. So the first one, you know the old saying, Emily and Sam, you are what you eat? Yes. That's not quite correct. Well, it's I'd be more chocolate, you are what you I? digest. <laughs> I'd be too chocolate. <laughs> We're freaking out here. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, if you don't have a good gut lining, no matter how healthy the food you put into your body, you're not going to be able to digest and extract that nutrient, all those nutrients to get them from your gut into your blood. So in order to get the most out of your food and have good digestion, you need to have good gut health. Now, the second element is the fact that along that nine meter digestive tract actually lays 70% of our immune system. So if we want things like less sick days, lower risk of allergies and autoimmune conditions, essentially, we need to have good gut health. And then it's this third element, which we touched on, which has really brought the fame to the concept of gut health. And that is that we contain trillions of bacteria. In fact, we contain more bacterial cells in the human body yeah. than we do human cells. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> yeah. So we're kind of like aliens in disguise. Um, and it's these bacteria. And, you know, I say bacteria um, – and we call the community of the bacteria our gut microbiota. But interestingly, maybe this is too much detail, it's not just bacteria. It's things like parasites mm-hmm. and viruses and fungi such as yeast, which, you know, typically we freak out about or historically we did anyway. But now we see actually they synergistically work together with the bacteria to form this organ called the gut microbiota, which is in the gut, um, which actually do so much for us. And like you touched on, Emily, we now see that these bacteria – are thought to be able to communicate to our brain. You know, they help regulate our appetite. They strengthen our immune system. Uh, they produce different hormones and vitamins. So they, yeah, they're shown to be, you know, quite key. In fact, humans probably couldn't survive without these trillions of, of bacteria. Wow. That's, um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> there were some words in there. I need a dictionary. We'll just I, I, I'm quickly. sitting here trying to absorb everything, and, and I, I just want you to fix my gut <laughs> while I'm sitting here. But no, it's not about me. So. I want to know, and I think a lot of people want to know this, why does bloating seem to be such a problem, especially amongst women? How come men don't bloat as much? Yeah, that's a really great one. So there's so many, like, although bloating is so commonly reported, the triggers for different people are so vast. There's so many different things. Um, I think one of the main ones I see in clinic as a cause of bloating is when people are constipated. Uh, and the stats show that females are more likely to be constipated. Well, now, to a level, uh, that probably has something to do with hormones and our yeah. menstrual cycle where the changes in our um, different hormones can slow down how fast our gut moves and therefore food kind of stays in there longer, which means more water is absorbed and that makes the stool or the poop kind of harder and, and you know, difficult to push out. Um, so constipation can be a big, um, you know, cause of bloating. So if you've got food kind of stuck up in you for longer, what happens is the bacteria, which do good, they actually kind of over-cement the forming stool or forming poop. And as a result, you get a little bit of extra gas being produced. Again, that's not harmful, uh, but if your food's in there for too long, then that over-cement can produce more gas and that can trigger some of the bloating. Um, So conservation is a big one. Uh, Another one is, um, funnily enough, 
there's a doctor diagnosed tight pants syndrome. Have you ever heard of that? What is it? <laughs> Back in the 90s, tight pants syndrome. Tight pant. That's interesting. Wow. Syndrome, um, like I feel like maybe oh, many of us have suffered from that like, just because we've had uh, a long Christmas season into January. Yeah. <laughs> Whenever you eat a meal, you get your pants are too tight. I always have to unbutton if I'm wearing jeans. <laughs> I mean, when I'm not well, pregnant. That you actually unbuttoned. So it was back in, I think it was 19, 1993 or something, where the first time um, it was put into a medical journal as like a medically diagnosed tight pants syndrome. So wow. what uh, the doctors found is that if we are wearing really tight clothes all day, which I find many females, we kind of live in our gym gear, you know, mm. outside of the gym, we go brunching in our gym gear and things like that. Actually, that's put a lot of pressure on our gut. Now, in our gut, we've got millions of nerves. Uh, so if we're kind of compacting it, that can aggravate those nerves, mm-hmm. particularly if you've got a sensitive gut. And as a result, uh, we can our body kind of rebels by pushing back and we can get some of that distension. So there. can the so, nerves become um, more sensitive? Like, do, can, some, can some people have more sensitive nerves? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this was where we kind of feed into another common trigger of um bloating and that's people who have got irritable bowel syndrome yeah lots of so i know you know all about it ibs family <laughs> but um about 10 to 15 percent of adults uh in the western world are thought to have irritable bowel syndrome and you know it's it's kind of more complex than i guess we typically hear about in the media um but we call ibs it kind of comes under this umbrella yeah. of these conditions and these conditions are called functional gut disorders so it sounds quite medical but essentially what it means is that structurally everything in your gut is normal. So if they go in with cameras and tests, they all come back normal. But the function of your gut isn't quite right. So the way the gut moves, the muscles push, and the enzymes are released, something's wrong there. Uh, and so under this kind of umbrella, we call them the functional gut disorders, there is functional bloating, uh, functional diarrhea, IBS falls under there. So there's all different types. Now, IBS, to get a diagnosis of it, you have to first always go to your GP and make sure you don't have celiac disease, um, which is an autoimmune condition to gluten. And funnily enough, you know, millions of people are actually living with undiagnosed celiac disease and go, oh, I've just got IBS, when actually they do have celiac disease. So before you just go, oh, it's IBS, I think people really do need to see their GP uh, and, and get the test, which is just a simple blood test um, to diagnose celiac disease. But you have to be eating gluten at the time. So don't restrict your diet. Go straight to your doctor and then find get the blood test before you start restricting any foods like, like gluten. Is it um, possible? So once you've can, kind of been cleared. Yep. Can I just jump in there? Sorry. Is it possible to yeah. be sensitive to gluten and not be gluten intolerant so you're not able to break it down properly? Yeah, that's a really good question. So there is the celiac disease, as we mentioned, but also there's a condition called non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Uh, so essentially, that is people who don't have, you know, that autoimmune condition, celiac disease, but they seem to have an issue with gluten. And we do think that, yes, it is a, um, a disorder, so kind of like an intolerance, but it's not as prevalent as people think it is. Mm-hmm. So we think maybe anywhere between um, 1% and 8% of people have non-celiac gluten sensitivity, so an intolerance to gluten. But actually, a lot of other people just have IBS. Um, and that, like I said, is a functional gut disorder, not a food intolerance. Mm-hmm. 
So you can, a subset can have um, gluten intolerance as, you know, the food intolerance, but I think majority of people actually just have a sensitive gut, i.e. fall under this functional gut disorder um, category. And therefore, when they have certain foods like wheat, it's not necessarily gluten, it's another type of nutrient in that which can kind of trigger symptoms. Um, But it's not the cause of the symptoms. So with IBS, to get the diagnosis, rule out those things like inflammatory bowel disease and celiac disease, you have to have stomach pain at least one day a week. It has to be ongoing for at least three um, to six months. And you have to have funky kind of stools in some way, whether they're really hard or really soft or they mix. So that's kind of the diagnostic criteria for IBS. And when we think about the underlying mechanism of IBS, what we see it as, as a dysfunction between the gut and the brain. So everyone's gut and brain is constantly communicating. But when you have IBS, that communication is dysregulated. And as a result, you get this very sensitive gut. Mm, that's my so gut. things like the tight pants, yeah, mm-hmm. you're more likely um, to have that bloating response to it. You know, if you go and eat large and large amounts of fiber and you're not used to it, again, you've got more of a sensitive gut um, and you're more likely to have some symptoms because of that. Yeah. I want to touch on something that's maybe more practical for people as well. If someone is bloated, you know, if they are seeing it, maybe, you know, it's somewhat common one, two times, three times a week. Every day. For uh, me. At what point do they need to stop and say there's there's a problem or there's something wrong? What are the trigger signs there? You know, I'm presuming it can be somewhat, um, you know, normal to bloat off yeah. certain foods. But when is it someone needs to stop and go, I need to see a, a professional? Yeah, look, I say that if it's any more than once a week and it's really impacting your quality of life, then it's important that you go um, and, you know, see GP first to rule out things like the celiac disease and then get more specific help. Um, But I've actually, not to plug the book, but I've actually wrote uh, a book called Eat Yourself Healthy specifically for people who are having these sorts of functional symptoms, whether it's bloating or constipation, and they're not quite sure what to do and they don't want to say, like, overreact and go to the doctor. Um, Because there are many different things that can be triggering people, like the tight pants, but also some people are having loads of, like, protein supplements, which often contain these sugar alcohols. We call them polyols, Mm -hmm. uh, which are things like um, xylitol and sorbitol. And what they do is they're not very well absorbed. So remember that nine-meter digestive tract? They're not very well absorbed high up in the digestive tract. So they make their way down, uh, kind of malabsorbed, so to speak, uh, and they get into the lower part of the intestine where most of those bacteria live. And the bacteria rapidly ferment them. And when they're coming down, they also like draw fluid from the body into the gut so you can get more bloating and kind of loose stools um, as a result of them. So actually I find that, you know, simple advice, if people cut back on those sorts of protein supplements with those sugar alcohols in it, actually that can relieve um, bloating for a lot of people. Um, Whereas other people, they might be overdoing it on the fruit. So we know that Mm -hmm. fruit is very beneficial. Having, you know, three pieces a day is great. But actually a lot of smoothies people are having, they're putting in like the equivalent of six pieces of fruit and they have it all at once. Yeah, it's crazy. And what we know... Yeah, and what we know about fruit is that it contains a fruit sugar called fructose, which is not bad, but our body can't absorb too much all at once. So if we're having like six pieces in the one sitting, then we malabsorb that, and again, it gets into the lower part of the intestine where the bacteria rapidly ferment it, and it releases a lot of that gas, and that can trigger the bloating, particularly in people with the sensitive gut. How interesting. Wow. So 
Can you do you know off the top of your head what foods tend to cause the most bloating for people, like the common triggers? Yeah, so um, like I said, a lot of those uh, protein supplements with with the sugar alcohols in it, so like the xylitol and sorbitol, chewing gum, uh, sugar-free chewing gum also contains them, so they're quite common. Um, I think having large amounts of fruit in one sitting, so I recommend still having your three pieces because they're full of you know really good nutrition, uh, but having just you know one piece every three hours rather than having you know all your pieces at once, I think is another one. Um, you know the smoothies. Uh, so things like um, having really high doses condensed all together, really large amounts of the fiber, people with sensitive guts can be too much of a load on the gut all at once. Yeah. So I say if you are having issues with bloating, try eat whole foods rather than the blended up foods. Yeah. And also, uh, interestingly, it's not just the food, but also the way you eat. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you are, um, you know, just having two really large meals, again, that can put more pressure on your intestine and make it harder to digest, which can trigger bloating in some people. Um, and so what I recommend to those people is actually having the same amount of food, but maybe five smaller meals over the day to help your body digest that more. Chewing is another one, just a simple thing, mm-hmm. but actually I find in clinics that that in itself can really help people suffering with bloating because people don't realize but digestion actually begins in our mouth yeah because we not only physically break it down but we have enzymes in our saliva so a little uh, fun experiment uh you guys can do is if you have some white bread put it in your mouth just let it sit there for a couple of minutes and actually you'll notice it starts to taste sweet and that's because the enzyme starts to break down the the carbohydrates the starch into simple sugars and as a result you can taste that sweetness. So, you know, trying to chew your food a lot more, so between, you know, 10 to 20 times, depending on the consistency, again, can actually help with digestion and reduce bloating in some people. And also sitting down, they say, to, to be calm when you're eating and not running running around and being on the go and trying to eat food at the same time. Yeah. yeah. And that's just that gut brain axis. So if you're mm-hmm. really stressed up in your head, your gut will also be really stressed and kind of really um, tight. Yeah. And again, it doesn't job properly and as a result you can bloat because of that. So you're referring to a sensitive gut. How does someone determine if they have a regular gut or a sensitive gut? <laughs> Excuse my layman's yeah, terms. So what I see, sorry, when I say sensitive gut, that kind of falls under that functional gut disorder thing. So if they've got IBS or functional bloating, so people probably have that um, if they notice that they're struggling with gut symptoms, whether it's bloating or reflux. Um, or constipation at least one day a week and it's an ongoing thing for like, you know, three to six months. Okay, They're the right. sorts of people who have what we call the sensitive gut. You know, it's not something people have to live with forever. It's about overcoming that sensitivity. And, and what I see is the way people typically do that and the clinical evidence is showing the same thing is actually relaxing, learning to relax that gut-brain axis because that seems to be the underlying cause of most people's sensitivity. Because things like IBS, we know that if you get a gut infection, um, so if you go over you know, to Bali or something and you get Bali Belly, you come back, um, that year you're a fourfold increased risk of developing IBS. But similarly, if you have you know, a lot of stress um, or trauma, again, you're at increased risk of having IBS. So there's many different you know, kind of causes of IBS, but the underlying mechanism is that dysfunction between the gut and the brain. So relaxing that, and there's studies that show that doing things like mindfulness. Emily, Sam, mm-hmm. do you guys do any mindfulness? 
I, I should do more. I think we all should do more, but for I do. Sure. I do yeah, try I, to do I it. Do. I do. Um, <clears throat> I have done the training now for um, transcendental meditation, which is um, quite handy, I find. Yeah. And, you know, it seems to be the busy, the busier people, actually, it, it's so hard for them to take the 15 minutes every day to stop and do some um, mindfulness or gut-directed yoga flows. But actually, those are the sorts of people that get the most benefit out of it. Mm-hmm. It's not an instant thing, though. It takes usually between 8 and 12 weeks of daily act, um, action. So 15 minutes, I recommend people typically do in the morning to, to try, um, you know, really relax that gut-brain axis. And after that, again, people need to continue it, but they start to notice that benefit that the foods that used to trigger them before um, actually don't trigger them as much anymore. It feels like the more that any sort of science looks into things, it all seems to be leading back, one, I guess, to the gut now we're learning, but also it's all so triggered by the mind in so many different ways. And stress. Stress is a huge one. Isn't it crazy? Yeah. Because your body can't. think about it, Sorry, you, you can't digest properly when you're in a stressed state because you're in fight or flight mode. So the blood's in your extremities, getting yourself ready to run away from a tiger or whatever. And a tiger it's, well, even? Yeah, well, we're going back to, you know, the times when this tiger's chasing us. But you, that's how your body goes. That's how we're dealing with stress these days. And then it's not in your in your gut digesting. Is that right? It's, it's not able to digest that's properly? exactly right, yeah. 100%. Yeah. How interesting. Well, here's yeah. one that is super interesting to me and I think – very um, political, if you will, in this in this world and certainly in Emily's world. But is there a difference between someone eating vegan, vegetarian and, you, you know, I guess a meat eater, whatever that standard um, line is called, but is there some benefit to any of those particular diets when we're referring to gut health? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. So actually scientists looked at this and what they tried to understand whether if you were vegan, so 100% plant-based, Um, how kind of good your gut health was versus someone who we call an omnivore, so they eat meat but also heaps of plants. And what they found, actually, being vegan didn't mean they had automatically better gut health. What was the biggest predictor of someone's gut health was actually how many different types of plant-based foods people were having in their diet per week. And what they found is people who had at least 30 different types per week actually had better gut health than those who had less um, diversity. So yes, you know, um, there is benefits of going 100% plant-based in terms of the environment, um, but also, you know, people do it for cultural reasons and things like that. But I think it's really, really important people know that it's not necessarily any healthier. Um, It's about, um, you know, more that plant-based diversity. But if you're still having some animal products and getting in that diversity, you know, your health um, isn't suffering at all. In fact, you know, it's going to be good for you. And so what you're saying, 30 different types of um, you know, plants and whatnot. So we're talking about a, quite a wide variety. I, I would think 30 is quite wide for, yeah. this, for the average person. I can't even think about 30. I, right I know that's that's quite – was that done – and I'm sure you, you, know, you don't have the study in front of you, but was that done over sort of, I guess, um, triage different levels of consumption? So 30 vegetables, 15, 10, so, you know what I mean? Or was it – Yeah, yeah. So when we talk about the plant-based foods, actually there are six different plant-based food groups. We've got the whole grains, so things like, you know, wheat and quinoa, and we've got uh, obviously the vegetables, the fruits, the legumes, the beans and the pulses. You've got your seeds and your nuts. So there's those six different plant-based food groups. Okay, I was thinking 30 different veggies. I was going carrot, celery, lettuce. That list was getting real short. And you know what's um, even more interesting is that we think it's important to get food from each of those 
six food groups. And, you know, the paleo diet um, kind of has taken off in some areas. And when they've looked at the long-term effects of the paleo diet, which essentially cuts out things like the legume group Mm. and the whole grain group, actually those people seem to have um, a less diverse range of gut bacteria, which we associate with poorer gut health. So why it's important to include all six is because they actually have different types of um, fibers and plant chemicals which feed different gut bacteria. So if you think of the bacteria in our gut like a sporting team, we actually want as many different types in there as possible because if you've got a team, you know, of all stellar forwards, but actually you don't have a wing and you don't have someone to defend the goal, actually overall you're not going to have a very good sporting team. And the same goes with their gut bacteria. So the more different types of bacteria in your gut, we think the better um, your gut health is. In fact, it's linked with lower risk of um, allergies, better mental health, you know, um, a healthier body weight, lower risk of heart disease, colon cancer and things like that. So diverse range of gut bacteria seems to be key. And how we achieve that seems to be eating a diverse range of plant-based foods from all of those six um, plant-based food groups because they all contain kind of different types of nutrients which feeds the different bacteria. So like humans, we've got different taste preferences, so do the gut bacteria. I think I know the answer to this question, but what about if someone is saying, you know, they're on a diet like the paleo diet or a ketogenic diet or or something in that realm, and they're saying, yes, but I can take a probiotic to counterbalance that? Yeah, unfortunately, yeah, like you've you've said um, or you've alluded to, it's (laughs) not as simple as that. Um, When we look at the evidence for probiotics, if you're generally healthy, actually, there is no evidence that you need to take a probiotic. Um, and we don't think probiotics are powerful enough to kind of repopulate your gut um, because if you think about it, it's like a drop in the ocean. We've got trillions yeah. of bacteria in and our ones gut. We don't know about. Um, because we don't know about we don't know about all the different types and strains of bacteria, and the probiotics exactly. only have a certain type. So then you're getting a buildup of the same type. Is that right? Absolutely. So you know. There is, you know, hundreds of different types. And if you think of these capsules, they might contain at most 15 different types. Yeah. Uh, and as soon as you stop taking them, what the research has suggested is actually they're out of your system because the bacteria that already kind of um, live in your gut and have this community kind of get rid of them because they they're kill kind them of off. foreigners, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, on the, on the topic of probates, I'm not sure if we'll come to it later, but I think, you know, they have really been misunderstood in a way and that, There's a lot of media headlines at the moment saying they're all useless, there's no point having them. And that's actually not very fair to probiotics in a way. Um, It's just that we've, our understanding of them has, I think, been quite um, primitive. What we need to start, like changing our mindset around probiotics. So it's kind of like vitamins and minerals. So if you had a um, iron deficiency, you're not going to go and take vitamin D supplement and expect your iron deficiency to improve, are you? Mm -hmm. The same goes with probiotics. You need to make sure you have the exact type of bacteria that has the benefit shown in clinical trials. You need to take it at the right dose and for the right duration. So this is going to sound pretty kind of scientific, but um, this is the way we need to start using probiotics like a prescription. So if you have to go on antibiotics for whatever reason, there is actually really good evidence to take a specific type of probiotic. So the type is called Saccharomyces boulardii. You would take that throughout I've heard of that. Period. I was struggling before to say gastrointestinal and you're rolling those words no, out. I actually know it because I'm a freak and I look at all that stuff. And we all over it. Yeah. So you would take that um, twice a day at a dose of 5 billion units um, per dose and you would take that throughout the antibiotic period and for a week after. 
So see how prescriptive that is? That's actually the way we need to start talking about probiotics yeah. to really get the most out of them. Well, because I was going to ask about antibiotics and are they really that bad for you, but you've kind of answered that if you're taking the right probiotics, then it's, you know, you need to take antibiotics yeah. at some stage if the doctor says. I think though that like the average exactly. person, and I consider myself this average person because <laughs> I, I don't have this, uh, you know, additional knowledge or, or whatever you want to call it like you guys do. But I think don't that put when me I in the same of, category as Megan. <laughs> but when I think of a probiotic, I feel like it's just off the shelf, right? You go into your local health food store or whatever and you can buy one that's sort of like a vitamin off the shelf. And so do you think that, I mean, it's not unlike the media, but do you think that maybe – what the media is trying to say is that, you know, almost self-assessed or self-diagnosed probiotics off the shelf maybe aren't as effective as they're trying to sell you in the marketing messages versus a clinical dosage prescribed by a healthcare professional. Yeah, that's no, that is absolutely, I think, um, what they're trying to say. But then when I'm seeing people in clinic, uh, they're thinking that actually there's no point in taking any probiotic. But yeah. it's about, yeah, getting that specific type. Um, and not to come back to the book, but in um, Eat Yourself Healthy, I have got the seven probiotic prescriptions where there actually is good evidence. Oh, wow. to take we all need this book. Type. Yeah, apparently. Wow, <laughs> yeah. look at that. That's incredible. How long ago did you publish the book? Uh, in September. Oh, that's oh, wow. exciting. When, where is this available? How does, how does one purchase? As I pick how my phone purchase? up and find the, <laughs> uh, the so link. Actually, it's available in um, Australia, um, in all the bookstores at the moment, um, and then obviously around the world. Where I, I don't know if I'm allowed to say exactly where it's about to be published um, in a couple of months, but it oh. is being translated in different um, languages oh, wow. and everything. So, yeah. It's, wow. um, Congratulations. Congratulations. Yes. That's so and good. And Facebook doing quite well. It's going to be my Bible. <laughs> yeah, that's it. We need to get onto that immediately, yeah. if not sooner. I want to pivot a little bit. And you actually asked me this question a little while ago and asked if I, I think you asked if I was aware of vaginal seeding. And I was like, what? And then I did actually know what it was, but I just didn't know the name of it. So can you explain what that is and why we do it? Yeah. So um, this has come from uh, the research which has shown that if a baby is delivered vaginally, so i.e. naturally, yep. um, they have different gut bacteria for the first six months of life than some a baby who's delivered by a C-section. And when we've uh, studied the long-term effects, so we've looked at um, bubs growing up who were vaginally versus C-section, we see that the babies who are delivered by C-section are at a higher risk of allergies and autoimmune conditions and things like asthma. And um, why we think that is, is actually because they've got the different bacteria, so not as diverse range of bacteria, and therefore their um, immune system, remember 70%, lives in their digestive tract, doesn't seem to be trained appropriately. So we think of these microbes, the bacteria, as kind of the trainers of the immune system, so the baby knows, uh, well, the baby's immune system knows what they should react to and what they shouldn't react to. Um, whereas if they're not inoculated with the right types of microbes, bacteria, then that immune system's not working quite right. So some researchers looked at whether we could kind of help mimic um, the vaginal birthing in babies who have to be delivered by C-section for safety reasons. And so what they did in the study was they um, got like a cotton wool bud and they put it um, in the mother's vaginal area, kind of really inoculating it with the bacteria from the vaginal fluid. And then within two minutes of having the baby by a C-section, they wiped uh, the baby with that cotton bud to really help seed the baby with the mother's vaginal bacteria. Amazing. And they followed the babies over time and they found that 
those babies who got the um, inoculations for the seeding by C-section, after, straight after C-section, actually had a more diverse range of gut bacteria than the bubs who had the C-section without the seeding. Because they're more sterile, right? Now, yeah, so because they're picking up the the babies who are delivered by C-section seem to be picking up the bacteria from the hospital rather than mm. from the mother. Right. Now, it is really, really important to say that this shouldn't be done at home um, no. because there are risks of doing it. There are some people who think, oh, look, when I get home, I'm, I had a C-section, I'm going to do it <sighs> the same processing. But there is, yes, yeah, so, so many risks. So what I recommend is people always talk to their obstetrician about it during their birthing plan and whether that's something that they'd be happy with. I think um, to date there isn't enough evidence for all um, hospitals to be doing this practice. Uh, but, you know, for me personally, I don't have any kids, but um, when I do finally uh, get to that stage, I will be talking to mine about it because, I, you know, I think that there is decent enough evidence for all of us to start considering it. Mm. Um, but there is many risks, so I think we need to make sure people don't start taking this practice into their own hands. And is that sort of a, a circumstance that's like a one-time situation, like you said, it's sort of immediately after yep. that C-section, it's just that one time and so... That really is, I mean, obviously the circumstances where people aren't having children in, in hospitals um, and some people have alternate, yeah. you know, options and, and decisions. But generally speaking, it's just that one go. It's not then continual yeah. ongoing exposure. No, so it's literally like mimicking the um, vaginal birthing Birth. process. Yep. Yeah. Because then they get other bacteria through, like when you kiss your child and they're crawling on the ground and all those things too and playing in the dirt. Yeah, exactly. So I think if a, if you you have to have a C-section for whatever reason, you shouldn't feel guilty, you shouldn't feel bad. There are so many other ways that you can really help it gut bacteria develop. You know, if vaginal seeding is not an option, which I think for most people it probably isn't because it is too early stage research, but things like we know the breastfeeding um, and you like you said, obviously not you know, in the first month or so, but letting the baby kind of play in the dirt um, and exposing it to different foods and things like that. Even pets, actually, it's been shown that bubs who grow up with furry pets um, for the first three years of life seem to have lower risk of allergies and stuff like that. So again, we think the bacteria that is exposed to the bub by the pet, they, you know, lick and play and all that sort of stuff, again, helps strengthen the baby's immune system. So interesting. So yeah. the, the microbiota begins, uh, when does that begin? It's in the womb, right? Like very early. Yeah, good, good question. So we used to think that in the womb the baby was completely sterile, um, but there has been a few studies coming out suggesting that maybe there is a teeny bit of bacteria that actually gets into the womb. Now, it's still kind of a bit controversial, so we're not overly sure, but we do know during the birthing process, is really where most of the bacteria start to get into the bub's um, gut. Interesting. Well, there you go. Um, I thought I'd just pivot back to, I mean, the core of, I guess, this discussion around bloating and whatnot and having a healthy gut. What about if somebody thinks they do have a healthy gut? Is there a, is there a test? Is there a way to check if that is the case? Yeah, so you know, kind of annoying that there is no single test. We want to know now, quickly. <laughs> yeah, I know. We all want that, right? Yeah. Um, and actually, again, that's why um, in the book I put together this 10-question kind of summary, which I get people to complete, and it puts them on a scale of um, 0 to 20 to identify, I guess, how healthy their gut is. Right. So we look at things like 
Do you get gut symptoms? Are you on a restrictive diet? How stressed are you? How much sleep do you have? How often do you get sick? And um, guys, if you have a podcast kind of little link, I can send you the questionnaire so people can complete it on yours um, to kind of get more of an insight. Now, in my research world, we do collect poop samples of people and we analyze to see what bacteria they've got in their gut and what chemicals. Yeah. I've done the stool test, (laughs) sent it off. (laughs) Yeah. So those sorts of things like are starting to be done commercially and, you know, it is really interesting to see what bacteria you have in your gut, but I think it's important that um, there's not a lot we can do with it at the moment. Uh, Mm -hmm. So a lot of people come to me in clinic with the test done and say, okay, give me the special diet that I need. And I say to them, look, you know, it's interesting results, but actually it's too early days for me to be able to go, okay, you've got this bacteria, therefore you need this diet, or you're missing this bacteria, therefore you need that. And the reason for that is identical bacteria can actually act very different in different environments or in different people's guts. So just knowing bacteria you have in you won't really determine what the bacteria is actually doing. And similarly, very different bacteria can actually do some of the very same mechanisms, produce the same hormones and things like that. Um, So I think, you know, in the next five years, these tests will be a lot more clinically valid and therefore we'll be able to take more um, information away from them to change people's diets. Uh, And that's what we're doing in the research world, trying to understand personalization based on poop samples. But at the moment, the commercial companies that are selling it is kind of ahead of where the science is at. So if you've got all the money in the world, absolutely go do it and have fun. Um, but if you're saving your pennies, I would certainly recommend you spend that money on fresh, you know, uh, plant-based foods rather than these tests because they aren't going to tell you a lot. What do you think of the stool transplant? Because I've actually yeah, looked into that myself. So, yeah. So poop transplants, you know, they are pretty much what they sound like um, where – I'm not sure, Emily, if all your followers have already heard you talk about it, but essentially um, it's getting the poop from a healthy person and transplanting it uh, into someone with a gut disease um, or a gut issue. Now, a lot of people are like, oh, my God, this sounds you know, crazy. Why would people ever do it? But actually this, this therapy has been saving thousands of lives in hospitals. So in all the major hospitals, they're currently doing this therapy um, to treat people with very serious and severe gut infections called C. diff. So if these people who've got this very severe gut issue don't respond to antibiotics, they've shown that these fecal transplants, um, so getting the poop sample from a healthy person and putting it into the person with the disease, actually can have um, cure rates up to 95%. So it's really quite powerful. But at the moment, that is the only indication for poop transplants is if you've got this really severe um, gut infection called C. diff and you're not responding to antibiotics. In the research world, we're starting to look at using the same therapy for other conditions like IBS and inflammatory bowel disease and allergies. But the results haven't been overly promising at the moment. And there are, you know, I'm not sure if it's the same um, in Oz at the moment, but I know in London there's private clinics now offering fecal transplants. Mm, yeah, we have And a here. lot of my um, patients, yeah, are yeah. they there too? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. A lot of my patients are saying, should I get it done? And I say, look, I think it's, too early stage because what we're seeing in research studies in animals is that you can transplant things like depression and anxiety. Mm. So although, you know, the donor is healthy, have they really reported that they have a family history of depression or anxiety? Yeah, it's pretty risky, isn't it? Wow, that's crazy. Because apparently you can put in um, poop from someone who is 
say, uh, overweight, right, but maybe their gut health seems quite good and you put it in someone who might be a, a thinner person, is it true that they start gaining weight too? I think they did this so in mice. Some, yeah, so yeah. this is mainly in mice um, where they've shown that and that was kind of where people got really excited and thought, oh, my God, this could be a, a therapy for obesity mm. is these fecal transplants. So actually doing it the other way, so getting a lean person and transplanting into animals, uh, sorry, into people who are overweight. Uh, so the animal studies were all positive and really convincing. Now, they've since done that in humans um, and found actually it didn't after, I think the transplants were done um, at six weeks um, or twice at uh, baseline and then at six weeks, and they found that actually it didn't change people's body weight. It did seem to change how they metabolize glucose a little bit. So it doesn't seem to be as straightforward as the animal study. Mm-hmm. But It'd I be temporary too, wouldn't it? Would it not? Yeah. It, it would be temporary, wouldn't it? Like when you go back to your, your shitty lifestyle and you're eating not so good food, then you'll just return to how yeah. you were before, right? Yeah, yeah, I suspect that's the case. Yeah. And also the donor's diet. So mm. I think that there will be a bit more matching. So not any donor is healthy. Yeah. It will be matching a specific donor based on their diet to a specific disease state. So, so much exciting research coming out. But at the moment, again, I think there could be more harm done with it. Mm. Good, so I would recommend this is a dumb question, a but the mice that we're referring to in these studies, <laughs> I mean, and, and get ready for it, Megan, here comes my stupidity that you're not familiar with, but the mice can't pop out of the cage and nip down the shops and get the bad food or the drive through <laughs> down the road. They're only exposed to what I presume is a very specific diet. So the study to an extent is going to be skewed because the average human can leave their operation or, or whatever will. it is and then on their way home pick up a Big Mac. Yeah, no, absolutely. But we do like to look at it in the animal setting because it is very controlled and we're looking at mechanisms there. So outside of things like people actually eating more calories, what they do is if they feed the mice the exact same amount of calories, some mice actually put on weight more than a lean mice, even though they're having the same calories. And that has to do with different genetics. I love to discuss it as if it's not the food I'm eating. It's more my genetics. Let's start going with that then, shall we? My bacteria is no good. I want new bacteria. (laughs) New bacteria. I've been dealt a bad hand. Well, look, we've sort of been going on for a while. I think what what might be nice to sort of finish on as a tangible um, is if, I mean, we've spoken a lot about what you're putting in your body and plant-based foods and, you know, a lot of things like that. And we've sort of touched on it a bit, but what are some of the non-food related or non you know, things that you're putting in your body related things that can uh, affect your gut. You know, we touched on before, um, you know, stress, and I think you sort of mentioned sleep. What other things can people be conscious of that's, you know, unrelated to the food that they're putting in their body? Yeah, so like we've covered the stress element and for those people, even if you don't feel stressed but have that sensitive gut, then literally they've shown that doing – things like gut-directed hypnotherapy or even just 15 minutes of mindfulness can have a significant improvement in people's gut symptoms um, rather than changing anything to do with their diet. So I think, you know, these non-diet approaches can be hugely powerful and people don't even need to change the types of foods they're having. So I think that absolutely is an important one. Sleep, like you mentioned, can have a really big impact on people's gut health. And why we see that is actually when... um, you know, every five days, the top part of our gut lining actually sheds and regenerates. And we think if you're not getting your seven to nine hours, then maybe that regeneration isn't as effective. So getting your seven to nine hours a night is actually really, really important for gut health. Um, seven and then to other nine. things like exercise. Wow. No wonder my gut's shit. 
That's a long time, isn't it? Wow, I would think that that'd be uh, seven is probably longer than I thought would be the the lower threshold. Yeah, and I knew that seven was like the minimum, but interesting. Yeah, um, and you said exercise too, obviously, is um, helpful. For yeah, that. yeah, exercise independent of diet. So it's not just because people exercise typically have you know more fiber and plant based foods in their diet, but actually exercise seems to be uh, helping regulate the gut bacteria. Now, maybe it's because people typically exercise outside and are exposed to more different types of microbes, or maybe exercise changes our hormones, which in turn changes how our gut moves. But yeah, getting active um, is really important also for gut health. Amazing. Well, wow. just before we wrap up, I think maybe let us know, where can people find you? There is a wealth of information. I think we've barely scratched the surface here, but um, where can we find you online? So I'm at the gut health doctor. Love and that. we have the same www.thegathealthdoctor.com. And the book is out in, or well, was out in September, and it's in all the good bookstores. All the really good ones. All the really good ones. <laughs> or online, presumably, you can you can purchase it through those major retailers yeah, as well. Yeah, all online, all them. Yeah. That sounds like we desperately need it. And we'll also get a link to the questionnaire, which will help people yeah. understand um, where they're at. And we'll link that as well. If you can send that over, it would be amazing. Yeah, I'm so excited about this episode. I think everyone's going to love this. I feel like we'll have part two. I feel like people will have other questions. I feel like that, yeah. For sure. Definitely. Thank you so much for joining us, Megan. I really appreciate you taking your time to help us. And obviously... No, thanks for having me. Thank you. And obviously our my podcast is called... I was saying our then, like you, you yeah, own no, it too, Sam. Don't it's, worry just, about it. it's mine. It's just You're you. just here. For the by ride. Emily Sky, not by <laughs> random dude and Emily Sky. <laughs> but it's called You Can and it's it's basically meaning that you can do anything. So you're capable and worthy and, and you can, right? So what is your You Can? Do you have any sort of anything that motivates you or anything that you can share with, with us? Well, I know this is going to sound, you know, a bit stereotypical coming from a, you know, gut health specialist, but that's what I find empowering about our gut health is that, you can take control of your own health. You know, there are yep. some levels of genetic issues, but actually, you know, we are really empowered by our gut health because so much of what's happening in terms of the bacteria is actually dictated by how we treat our bodies. So actually I do, um, you know, I have really changed how I look after my body because of my understanding that actually it's not home just to me, but it's home to this community of bacteria that in turn can, you know, improve my mental health, keep me happier and healthier for longer. So mm -hmm. making little small things. So whatever, you know, whenever I'm eating, I make sure that I'm not only feeding um, my taste buds, so really enjoying the food, but also have something on my plate for my gut bacteria. Keep them um, happy so and then you're happy. Show, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It truly is. Like <laughs> yeah. It sounds, you know, a bit lame, but, you know, the science is actually highlighting this is, a, you know, a yeah. real thing. Keeping them happy will keep you happy. How interesting. I've got one last question before we go, just because I like the tangible stuff for the audience. In a day, what's on your plate? What are you eating in a day? Yeah, so I always start my day with my overnight fermented oats. Uh, so it's really, it literally takes, you know, three minutes to make. I chuck in, um, you know, oats, whether it's grated carrots, some walnuts and some psyllium and some simic seeds in there um, and some dates and some banana and then chuck in some kefir. And then oh. the kefir, which contains those live bacteria, and then overnight, while I'm sleeping, the bacteria from the kefir and the yeast start to actually turn my overnight oats into this, like, fermented, flavoursome goodness. So I wake up in the morning and breakfast is ready because the bacteria have done all the fermenting of it. So I have that. 
um, for breakfast. And then for snack, I've actually um, excitingly just come out with my own granola. Um, unfortunately, it's not available in oh, Australia no. yet, oh. but fingers crossed. That's it's not no fair. No sugar, high fiber. Snack on that. Um, for lunch, I'll have something like whether it's a stir fry with all different legumes in it. Um, sourdough is something I have pretty much every day. Cedar sourdough is my favorite. Um, for afternoon tea, I'll probably have some nuts and some fruit. Uh, for dinner, I'll have something, you know, whatever's going, whether it's some salmon um, with, again, mixed veggies and some whole grains. I really love wheat berries at the moment. Have you had wheat berries before? No. I don't know what that is. No. Oh, they're so tasty. You get them in like a two-minute microwave pack here um, with quinoa, and it's just like so textury. I love it. It's really nutty. Uh, And then for dessert, I often have um, some white chocolate, and I make this two-bite chocolate bar where I've added in goodies for my bacteria. So the white chocolate for me, but then I add in um, some extra virgin olive oil when I'm making it, um, some dried mango, which is prebiotic with pistachio nuts, and drizzle it with some dark chocolate. I can give you the recipe if the listeners want to make that too. Can you make it for me? It's just a really... (laughs) Yeah, send it over. It's just a really good example of how actually um, you can have foods that not only feed your taste buds and you really enjoy, but also feed the gut bacteria. It's that mentality of both enjoying your food. So, you know, with your chocolate, Emily, yep. it would just be adding in some goodness that also feeds the bacteria. So you still have your chocolate there. So good. Incredible. I have one quick question. Oh, I mean, we're I just could sit here forever. But do you do you soak your legumes? Because I get very gassy from legumes. I get bloated. My gut hates them. Yeah. So we didn't really get to get into that too much. But um, a lot of people with sensitive guts do complain of um, issues when they have legumes, and that's because they contain they actually contain a prebiotic. Now, prebiotics feed the good bacteria, mm-hmm. so it's a good thing. But if you've got a sensitive gut and have too much of those prebiotics all at once, what happens is the bacteria eat them fast and release a lot of gas. That can put more pressure on your gut and trigger things like the bloating and and the stomach pain for some people. But it's really actually quite important that you don't completely cut them out. Because what we think is if you completely cut them out, you become more sensitive to them. And they've got really good nutrition in them. So what I recommend, if people are sensitive to them, have the canned version mm-hmm. um, and then rinse them and drain them really well because that can get rid of some of those prebiotics. And then literally, if you're super sensitive, I would just say have one tablespoon um, once a day just with one of your meals and build up. And then the second week, you might be able to have two tablespoons because it is really important that you teach your gut to adapt to it rather mm. than just go, oh, no, it's not for me and completely exclude it. Yeah, because a lot of people, and I, I used to believe it too, uh, a lot of foods I was sensitive to, I did the blood test, the IgA, IgG, whatever they're called, and heaps of things came yeah. up that I was sensitive to, like bananas and mushrooms. They were right at the, the red column, like the most sensitive. And so I thought I have to eliminate all of them. I can't have any of them. But you can actually build up that tolerance and you do it slowly, like you've said, like you, you make sure your gut sort of, I guess, I don't know what else to call it, but heals and then you start introducing slowly amongst other foods that your body doesn't mind, <laughs> that your gut doesn't yeah, mind. Yeah, and, and just to note on those intolerance tests, unfortunately, because they really upset me, um, mm. is that they're just not valid. So that yep. what they do is test the IgG in the blood and it kind of plays off an allergy. So if you have a food allergy, um, they test, the IgA and that's um, so IgE and that's completely valid. So if you've got a food mm-hmm. allergy which involves the immune system, yes, you can diagnose that. Most of them via a blood test. But if you have a food intolerance which isn't an allergy and therefore it doesn't involve the immune system, 
there is no test, whether it's um, the blood test, hair test, that can actually diagnose it, except the one type called lactose intolerance. So that's a milk sugar intolerance. There is a valid blood test, uh, sorry, breath test for that. But yeah. all the others, what they do is just chance finding. They usually, because mm. um, we've sent oh away. We've been basing Emily's bloody menus on this fanciful fake science. Yeah, I've, been, I've had the test multiple times and it's come back with different things. And I'm thinking, I exactly. can't eat anything. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. you know what? It's, it's upsetting because you've obviously yeah. learned that, yes, you can have them. But I'm seeing people in my clinic who um, are coming to me with 20 on 20 safe foods. They've got so much food fear and anxiety. Yep. You know, one lady couldn't even keep breastfeeding because she had lost so much weight from anxiety mm. because she wasn't eating anything as well. So these tests are actually really quite damaging. It's yeah. not just a waste of money, but it damages people's relationship well, yeah, with food. Yeah, because you're thinking, if you think a food's going to upset you, it probably will because you're thinking about it. You know, It's just ridiculous. Yeah, and again, we've shown studies, it's called the nocebo effect, yeah. where if someone thinks they've got an intolerance to something, and we give them not that but something else as a fake one, they physically develop gut symptoms like bloating and diarrhea because of that gut-brain axis. So it's like this vicious cycle. Um, So, yeah, those tests shouldn't exist. I actually got fed up with the whole thing and I stopped – I stopped doing that. I can't have this. I, I can't have quinoa because I know that I, I vomit, I shake, I get a diarrhea. It's horrendous. And that's because the outer layer, yeah. the poisonous layer, blah, blah, blah. Like we won't go into that now, but I ended up getting yeah. that. My sister got it as well. But um, the other stuff I just, in my mind, I went, I'm just going to clear it and not even think about it. And I'll have it with some foods and not fear it. And I've been fine. Like I do get bloating and that's just something that I always get. I'm still trying to get on top of it, but I don't get any sort of crazy reaction or anything like that. So it, yeah, it's in our head most of the time. And Emily, you're, yeah, you're such a good advocate for this because it is really important that we get that message out there because all the health guidelines say these tests are completely invalid, but mm. they can still somehow sell them online because it's not regulated. Yeah. Um, but it's, yeah, completely frustrating. And, you know, with your bloating, Emily, if you, I know it's difficult because you've got obviously beautiful Mia and you're pregnant yeah. and you've got this amazing business. But if you could try set 15 minutes aside every single day and whether it's mindfulness or a gut-directed yoga flow to really relax that gut-brain axis, you know, by 8 to 12 weeks, I can promise you um, there is a very good chance that the bloating won't be as bad and then over time it will probably completely go. But it's just about setting and prioritising that. I'll be doing that. Yes. We'll plug that into the old schedule, (laughs) shall we? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) You have to prioritise it though, that's the point. Yeah. yeah, I reckon but, we'll definitely have to get you back if you're keen because there's yeah, so no, much more to talk about. This is obviously I'm just like a sponge right now absorbing everything and I'm sure. sure the listeners are as well. But thank you again. We did. We went on and we went to end I know, it before. Back, and, forward, yeah, yeah, us. But we're actually ending now. So thank you so much, <laughs> Megan. And anything else you want to add before I end oh, it? Or am it. I like, no more no? questions. We're shutting down the question department. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you, Megan. And make sure you go and check her out, guys, because she's amazing. And remember, you can take control of your gut health. Thanks for listening to the You Can podcast with me, Emily Skye. This podcast is part of the Spin Studio Network. Make sure you hit the subscribe button, and I'll be so grateful if you could rate and review my podcast. To stay up to date with me, Follow me on Instagram at You Can by Emily Sky and join our closed Facebook group so we can chat. Just search You Can by Emily Sky.